For a number of years, I've known a guy, and I'll call him Bob, and Bob views himself as something of a Bible answer man. Now, he's got some valid reasons for thinking about himself that way because he is, in fact, incredibly knowledgeable about Scripture. He's memorized huge chunks of the Bible. And even more, he's studied the texts and he's learned Bible background and the culture behind the text. There is a lot to him. And if you ever were to listen to him teach, you would glean a lot. Here's what's sad, though. Very little of what Bob knows to be true actually shows up in his life. It's not visible in his character. If you met him, you would quickly realize that he is a very pompous and rude individual. He loves to show off his knowledge, and he's very condescending toward people who know less than he does. Whenever he listens to someone else teach the Bible, I've never once heard him say anything like this. You know, you raised some good points that I've never thought of before. He wouldn't say that because he's got all the answers. So he's much more likely to say something like this. You know, that was, that was an okay lesson, but you really left out two or three key points. I once heard Bob teach on the great commandment of Jesus, and he taught passionately and eloquently about how we can love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and how we can love others as we love ourselves. And yet the very love of which he spoke and taught so eloquently is painfully absent from his own life. Because for Bob, it's all about him. And I am struck by this tragic contrast. Great biblical knowledge and a great lack of love. Now, Bob admittedly is an extreme case, but the fact is that Christians sometimes fall into this unhealthy pattern where we fail to live out what we know to be true. There's a disconnect between our knowledge and our lives. So how do we avoid that? How do we become aware of those areas of our lives where God wants to prod us and nurture us so that we can grow and experience a richer fuller life. Well, there are many ways we can do that, but I believe one great way is to embrace community, to make the choice to integrate ourselves deeply into the lives of other believers so that we can develop relationships of mutual encouragement and mutual support and mutual accountability. And as I think about Bob, I realize that community is one of the missing ingredients in his life. He avoids settings where he might be encouraged to share something personal about himself. He never invites other people to pray for him about any need or something deeply personal. There's no one in his life with whom he can be vulnerable or transparent. And because of this, Bob is largely aware, unaware, of those areas where he falls short. He needs community. 
Because the fact is, when followers of Jesus embrace community, this community that God has given to us as a gift, this community that we call the church, when we embrace this community, we have the opportunity to create the kinds of relationships where we can help each other experience the richness of increasingly learning how to love God and how to love others. When we step into community, God changes us in powerful ways. And that's the next step that we want to talk about this morning, how you and I can embrace community more and more so that we can learn to love in the way that Jesus asks us to love. And we find some very helpful teaching about this issue in the book of 1 John. This morning we'll be in chapter 3, starting in verse 11. This is John, one of Jesus' closest friends, one of the original 12 disciples, a man called the Apostle of Love. And John writes, For this is the message you heard from the beginning, we should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know... We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Now we're talking about community, and you'll notice that the word community never appears here in this passage. But the fact is, John's talking about love, and love doesn't happen in isolation. It happens in the relationships that we form within community. And as John makes clear, relationships within this community, the community of faith, should be shaped by love rather than by hate. Now, that might seem obvious, but notice that John directs our attention toward the first murder in recorded human history, the murder of Abel by his brother Cain. He murdered his own brother. How could he do that? Well, if we look back at the book of Genesis chapter 4 and read about Cain, we discover that instead of loving his brother, he allowed himself to become full of anger and hate toward his brother. And as that attitude developed within him, he didn't listen to God, he didn't listen to his conscience, he didn't listen to anyone else, he just lashed out and stole the life of his brother. And I believe John's making a very critical point, that any human relationship, because of sin, can fall prey to hate instead of love if we're not careful. And while hopefully you and I never will murder anyone, The fact is, we may at times engage in hateful acts toward other believers. And you don't have to look very hard or very far, unfortunately, to see Christians engaging in slander or malicious gossip or practicing deceit toward other members of God's family. And John wants us to know that if that's part of our character, if we're disposed toward hatred rather than love, then as he writes here in verse 14, we remain in death. Now that is a potent statement. 
He's saying that if we're predisposed toward hate, then we've not experienced truly new life through Jesus. The Holy Spirit is not transforming us, and we are stuck in our old patterns of our old life. And so we're producing hate rather than the love that Jesus wants to see in his followers. Now, this is a message I believe the church of Jesus Christ urgently needs to hear because we currently are living through a season in our culture when we are surrounded by seething hate. And sometimes this hatred seeps into the church. And believers wind up expressing unloving attitudes toward people who disagree with them or toward people who are different from them. And as I ponder this, it strikes me that love is very easy to embrace as a general principle. It's easy to sit here in church and say, oh, we just need to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And we just need to love each other as we love ourselves. The challenge comes when we have to actually love real people. The real people that God sends into our lives. So I was thinking about this, I was reminded of a classic Peanuts cartoon. Some of you will remember this. Lucy is criticizing her brother Linus. And she says, the problem with you is that you don't love mankind. And he says, I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. I understand the sentiment. Pastors often joke that the ministry would be a lot more enjoyable if we just never had to deal with people. And yet, if we can't stand people, and if we don't want to deal with people, then we're beginning down to head down a path that can lead to hatred. I believe I passionately believe that one of the best antidotes to hatred is to intentionally embrace community with others, in particular with people who are not like us. And I think we should embrace community with people who are not like us, and we do so with the specific goal of learning to love them. And with the specific goal of allowing them to teach us how we can love better. Now, in a church like ours, there are many opportunities where we can build connections with people who are, in fact, different than we are. But this morning, I want to highlight one particular area where I believe you and I can be greatly enriched by embracing community in perhaps a newer or at least a stronger and deeper way. I believe that we need to make more effort to connect more closely across the generations. You see, the pattern of the culture is for different generations to be suspicious of one another and to mock each other and disparage each other. And so it's not unusual to hear comments like, oh, those old people. Or, what's the matter with the young people today? That's the pattern of the culture. John, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, following the teaching of Jesus, is urging us to follow a different pattern, to love one another. 
And so I deeply believe that those of us who are older must be more intentional about spending time with younger adults. And I believe we need to spend time with them to understand the challenges they face in their generation. And to understand the perspective they bring to the life of faith. And I believe that we need to listen to our young adults more and lecture them less and disparage them less. Because I believe they have things to teach us about how to love God and how to love one another. And those of you who are younger adults, be intentional about spending some time with those of us who are older. Some of us have lived in the life of faith a while. And we've taken some shots for it. And we have some wisdom to share. And there are some things we would love to pass on to you about how to love God and love one another. And so just to be really practical, pick somebody in this church from another generation and invite them out for a cup of coffee. Have them over for a meal. Let's get to know each other better across the generations because we can help every one of us Learn to love more and to love better and to love in the way that Jesus asks us to love. And here's what we find. It's a lot harder to stereotype people when they're our friends. When someone's a nameless part of a group, it's so easy to mock them. But not when they're our friends. And as we get to know people, we move beyond distrust. We move beyond suspicion. We move beyond hate. And love begins to grow. It begins to flourish. And here is what is so wonderful. As love begins to flourish in our relationships, we reach the point where we are willing to make sacrifices for each other. That is one of the outgrowths of being transformed through community by the love of Jesus Christ. The willingness to sacrifice for one another. And that's what John writes about next, starting in verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. John wants us to embrace the community of faith so strongly and so deeply that if necessary, we would be willing to die for each other. Now, admittedly, that would be a rather extreme situation. It would probably only have to occur in rare cases. So John cuts to the chase and he points out a more practical way for us to lay down our lives. And if I were to paraphrase what he's saying here, I would say it this way. Since Jesus sacrificed his life for us, can't we at least be willing to sacrifice some of our stuff for each other? After all, if, if I identify a need in your life, a practical need, and I have the means to meet that need, yet I choose to ignore it and I turn away, I'm not being very loving. 
And John says here, I can't just talk a good game. I have to walk the talk so that what I know and what I believe actually shows up in my life. And that means I need to loosen my grip on my stuff. It all comes from God anyway. And they need to be able to share it when appropriate with those who are in need. And as I ponder this, it occurs to me that in our over-scheduled, over-busy, frenetic world, sometimes the greatest gift I can give someone may not be some of my money or some of my possessions, but may in fact be the gift of my time. Sometimes that's what people need the most, and sometimes that might be the biggest sacrifice we can make. And, and yet here's what happens. I may not see all this. I can be blind to those areas of my life where I may have tendencies towards selfishness. And you may as well. And that's why we need each other. We can help each other learn to be more generous with what we have. Our money, our possessions, our time. We can help each other overcome those blind spots we have. And here's a way to do this. One of the things I love about our church is we have so many people here who are wired to meet needs, and there's a lot of care for one another that takes place here. And, and here's a suggestion. The next time that you see a need here in our church family, and God prompts you to try and meet that need, don't just do it yourself. Invite another member of the church family to join you in that effort. So it might look something like this. A guy might come up to me and say, Hey, Bruce, Charlie's laid up and he's gotten really behind on his yard work. I'm going to go over on Saturday and mow his lawn and do some pruning. Why don't you come with me? You see, if you did that, you'd be acting out love on several levels. Number one, you'd be loving Charlie who's laid up and needs the help. But secondly, you'd be modeling for me how to give some of my time and effort to help love Charlie. And if that was an area where perhaps I was being a bit selfish or at least oblivious to the need, you'd help open my eyes to see the need and help me be more able to step alongside you and meet that need. You would be helping me to put God's love into greater action in my own life. And to me, that's the power of community. We help each other grow in our ability to love. Community is transforming. And John's going to talk about something next to me that's really fascinating because there is this really unique byproduct of learning to love. The more we love as Jesus asks us to love, the more assurance we get that our faith is real. You see, when we put our faith into action and we love God and we love others, then we get to see God at work in us and through us. And the more this happens, the more our spiritual doubts tend to ebb away. And that's what John writes about, starting in verse 19. This is how we know, not hope, not wonder, but know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and He knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from Him anything we ask because we keep His commands and do what pleases Him. And this is His command, to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as He commanded us. 
You know, one of the great challenges is self-doubt. The life of faith isn't always easy. And we often can question ourselves. We might even condemn ourselves. And we, we may accuse ourselves of falling short of God's expectations. And when that happens, when we're beating ourselves up, John wants us to know first and foremost that our hope and our assurance comes from God, not from our feelings. God's truth is far greater than however I might feel about myself at any given moment. And the truth is, I know I'm a follower of Jesus. That's my assurance. But secondly, if we are trusting in Jesus, and if we're engaged in loving relationships, then we can be assured that we're on the right track because we'll see God at work in our lives. And if by chance we don't, other members of the community can help us see it. My wife and I had an experience of this a number of years ago with a woman named Sally who was a part of the small group that we were leading. And Sally had the God-given gifts of hospitality and service. She regularly opened her home to extend hospitality to others. And if anybody in the church family was sick, Sally would be the first person at their doorstep to bring a hot meal. Well, one day during our small group meeting, Sally opened up to us about some of the doubts she was having. She said, I just, I just don't feel very spiritual sometimes. And I wonder if I'm faithfully following Jesus. Now, if we didn't know Sally, how would we have answered that question? I suspect we might have given her some generic answer. But you see, we were in community with her. We knew her well. We saw her demonstrating consistently her love for God by generously and sacrificially loving others. And that's what we then were able to tell her. And we were able to help Sally see herself in a new light and see her faith in a new way. She got some feedback from the community of faith that reassured her of the reality and the vitality of her faith. And she was able to see that God was at work in her life. And that her ongoing expressions of hospitality were an ongoing expression of the fact that she was a woman of faith. So she developed greater confidence in herself. She developed greater confidence in God because of the assurances that we were able to give her. And we could give her that assurance because we knew her and we knew her because we were in community with her. We saw love at work in her life because of that deep connection that comes through community. When we step into community, it has the potential to transform us. And as I consider all that John writes about in this passage, it seems very clear to me, and I hope it's clear to you, that embracing community simply cannot be an option for a follower of Jesus. If we want to learn how to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, if we want to learn how to love one another as we love ourselves, then we need to have meaningful relationships with one another that go beyond, hi, how you doing on Sunday morning. When we embrace community, John tells us that hate begins to dissipate and love begins to flourish. 
We grow in our willingness to sacrifice for each other and meet each other's needs, and we develop greater assurance of our faith as we see God at work in our lives. I want more of that. And I hope that you do too. But how do we do that? How do we put it into practice? Based on what John has written here, is there a next step perhaps that God might want you to take? I have some suggestions. First, I know that some of you are not very well connected here. And if that's the case, I want to encourage you to take an initial step to build some relationships while you're here on Sunday morning. And one easy way to do that is to participate in the welcome in. So show up early next week for this service. Don't come at 11 or as some of you do at 11.10 or 11.15. Show up at 10.30 or 10.40. Wander into the welcome in. We've got a wonderful time there between the services where you can grab a cup of coffee, get a snack, and we can connect with one another. It is a simple and easy place to begin forging relationships. And as you think about that, let's put it in some context. I know that many of you will easily spend two hours or more at a tailgate party before a Ducks game. And if you're willing to give that kind of time to a football game, can you give 30 minutes to getting connected with the family of God? And here's another thought. Some of you I know are regulars and you regularly step into the welcome in and you enjoy that time of fellowship. But I think we need to step out of our comfort zones as well. And so make sure each week that you don't just talk to the same people. Look for new faces. Make guests feel welcome. Strike up a conversation with that person who's been around Gardenway as long as you but you've never really gotten to know them. Let's broaden and deepen our connections with one another. The welcome in's not the only way, but it's a great first place to start. And even after church, when we sing the final song, don't make a beeline for the exit. Stick around. Have a conversation. Connect with somebody. Here's another suggestion. Get involved with one of our Sunday morning adult Bible fellowships or one of our midweek life groups. We have groups for all ages and stages. We have a wonderful group for young adults. We have a vibrant group for seniors, and we have everything in between. And these groups are a great opportunity for us to build relationships because there's more time available than we have on Sunday morning. And we can create the kinds of relationships that help us to live out what John described here in our Bible passage, the kind of relationships where we help each other learn how to love as Jesus asks us to love. And I deeply believe this. I'm passionately committed to it. But I don't want you to just take my word for it. Rob Ness is a leader of one of our life groups. Come on up, Rob. And Rob deeply believes in the value of life together in community. And I've asked Rob to share this morning some of the reasons why he thinks making time for community, specifically through life groups, is so incredibly important. Rob? Share with us what's on your heart. Thank you. So how many people are involved in a life group? Just raise your hands. Now, keep your hands up for a second. And all the people that don't have your hands raised, look around and identify two or three people that you know that are involved in a life group. 
Okay, you can put your hands down. Here's what I want the people that are, did not lift their hands up to be challenged to do. Talk to two or three people that are involved in a life group and just ask them, you know, what is it about a life group that, why do you spend the time going to that? How does it meet your needs? What do you get out of that? Um, what group do you go to? Um, I challenge you to do that because that might be the introduction to going and trying out that life group and see if it has something of value for you. And, and if you don't remember anything else about what I say, remember that. Most of us have very busy lives. I know I do. And I have to admit that I get home from work on Wednesday nights and sometimes it's been very stressful. I'm still thinking about the problems at work and, and, and all the other things that I need to do. And the last thing I want to do is to go and leave the house and go to another event whether it's a life group or anything else. And then my wife, she gently reminds me that I'm responsible for the lesson, then I really have to go. <laughs> and it's a good, a good thing she does. But, you know, so we go, and we participate in the life group, and, and uh, the life groups we go to is about 15 minutes from our house. So on the way home, we get a chance to talk about, you know, what's happened that night. And after she does a normal critique of my lesson... <laughs> Then we get to talk about the, the people that are there and, and the growth we've seen in some of those people and, and some of the prayer needs and some of the, some of the uh, prayer rejoicing that we have. And I don't remember even once in all of those times thinking, boy, I wish I hadn't gone tonight. That was really a waste of time. Uh, it's always been, this has been a really blessing, and the more I've stressed, the more important it is that I go. So I asked my group, I said, what, uh, why do you participate in this life group and I got a bunch of different answers here's one of them life group is a real blessing in my life I didn't know many people in the church before I started in this life group and now I've developed some close relationships life group is where I develop some of my closest friendships another one said I know that I have prayer support that I need I feel comfortable sharing my life with the group since I know that the people in the room love me and accept me. I can share because I know life group is a safe environment. Another one said, I didn't know what it means to live like a Christian. And I've learned a lot about what it means to live like a Christian by watching other Christians show how Christ has affected their life and how they live that out. This is from one of a, new, a newer Christian. She found it very valuable. Another one said, life group is where I can experience authentic community. Now, I know that person's been listening because we talked about authentic community this last year. <laughs> and, and they knew what the answer to, to what authentic community is. It comes out of Romans 12. And here's, here's the definition of authentic community. community. The real you, that means the person without the mask on, without the pretensions of who you think you are. The real you meets real needs for the right reason in the right way. A lot in that phrase. Real you, real needs, for the right reasons in the right way. Our group spends a lot of time talking about Christian living. We all need to grow in that area. As we've studied through things like Romans 12 or the Sermon on the Mount, we realize that, uh, that the principles that are taught here about Christian living are just impossible to reach. However, 
through community, through sharing our lives together, through prayer, and through the work of the Holy Spirit, we can see maturing in our lives as we, as we come closer and closer to those ideals. And that's got, got a purpose, too, because our maturing is really to help build up the Christian community and to be a good witness to the non-Christians. Over time in our life group, everybody goes through hard times and good times. And the group is there to help them um, in both and support them. The lesson's only one thing that happens in life group. It's only, it, it's, it's only equal to two other things that happen in life group. The first thing our life group does is just share about what we've been doing for the week. Just like a family getting around the, around the uh, dinner table. You know, what happened in, this week in your lives? And that's really important to getting to know each other. And then at the end, we pray for each other. And we even try out different kinds of methodologies in prayer uh, to, to, to encourage each other in our prayer lives. Because sometimes it's difficult to, to uh, pray publicly, um, in, in a, even in a small group. Um, this last week, we actually spent some time talking about breath prayers, which is just a little technique that's used to help when you're full of anxiety and can't really focus, to focus on God's word using, using your breath. You can talk to me about that sometime if you're interested. The study we are starting this week is, um, is called uh, Love First. It's, it's based on a book. And that's not, why, um, that's not what got my attention. It was the subtitle that got my attention. The subtitle is, Ending hate before it's too late. As, as Bruce talked about earlier in the sermon, and, and, uh, and, and as most of you observe if you watch the news or, or read the newspaper, there's a lot of hate out in the world. And it's very, very destructive. And so this book is challenging us to, to learn how we might be contributing to that hate in sometimes very, very subtle ways. Um, as We're going to be spending a lot of time, obviously, in Chris, 1 Corinthians 13. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 13, the fourth chapter, it talks about the attributes of love. Love is patient and kind, two positive attributes. And then it lists eight attributes of what love's not. <laughs> kind of interesting, isn't it? Yeah, there's a lot of pitfalls out there. There's a lot of ways that uh, we can be unloving in, 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 uh, in, in ways that maybe aren't obvious to us. The last thing I want to talk about just for a second here is Rob Carney taught me many years ago, and I, I know this isn't, wasn't a, a new concept to him, but, but he reinforced this with me, and he says, pray for the empty chair in your life group. And we don't do it all the time, but every once in a while we, we, we're reminded of this, and we put out an empty chair, and we pray for the person that might be filling that chair sometime down the road. And it's amazing the things that have happened by praying for that empty chair. Several years ago, um, I received a phone call from somebody who had never been to Garden Way Church before, um, and she asked if she could come to our life group. I said, well, sure. Well, this is somebody that Julie White had met and in, in some, some setting. I can't remember exactly what it was, and knew about Garden Way because of Julie. Couldn't come to Sunday morning worship because she had a mother that she needed to take care of out of town. So she looked it up, was brave enough to give me a phone call, and brave enough to come to a life group where she knew nobody. Um, she was going through some difficult times in her life, and she met with us for a couple of years before she moved to Southern California, and, and we really miss her. But uh, you could, we could think that, wow, we, we provided a real need in that person's life, and I hope we did. 
But the more important thing is that I remember that she provided a lot to us. Um, her insight and her wisdom from her life, as she shared with us, really inspired us. Another situation, we were praying for the empty chair. And Ken, Har Ken Harris, who most of you know, came up to uh, me after a, a, a church service. And I hadn't more than just met Ken once or twice. I didn't know anything about him. And he was courageous enough to step forward and say, hey, Rob, uh, do you know anything about the life groups around here? And I said, well, yeah, I do. Um, would you like to attend ours and see if, uh, if, if it might be somewhere you fit? And so he came and to their life group, he and Sarah, and he, they've just been a huge blessing to us. I mean, anybody that's spent much time around Ken and Sarah just know what kind of a blessing they can be. And we've been just thrilled over the last three years as, as we've gotten to know them better and watched them mature in their Christian life and as they go through various struggles. Um, again, it was him reaching out and us praying for that empty chair. We had no idea that Ken and Sarah were looking for a life group or, or had any, any needs in that area. Recently, we uh, were praying for the empty chair, and it was, again, uh, a miraculous kind of thing that happened. Uh, Jim Willis had had a friend that he was trying to encourage um, to, to check out Christianity, and she'd recently become a Christian but had not been um, in, in any sort of group situation like this, and so he encouraged her to come, and she's, again, has never stepped foot in Garden Way for a church worship service. She actually goes to the Catholic Church. And uh, she stepped in, and we thought, well, this is really neat, you know, we'll get some different perspectives. And after a couple of weeks, Jim and Linda, as they'd normally do, went south for the winter. And we go, well, we've probably seen the last of this person. She's probably not going to attend because she's only coming because of Jim's invite. Well, she stayed. And it's been just really good to get to know her over the last year. The, the thing that she brings to the group that, that uh, most of us don't have this perspective is, she says, all my friends are non-Christians. I don't have non-Christian friends. And, in fact, most of them are atheists. They don't even want to talk about uh, God. And, and so she says, I just enjoy that uh, by coming here and, and listening to Christians interact. I'm, I'm learning about what it means to be a Christian and how I live out my faith, and it helps me then speak to my friends about Christianity. Um, she has been a great encouragement to the group. So as you can see from, all, from these examples I've given to you, we're not asking you to come to a life group just so you'll be enriched. We're asking you to come so we'll be enriched because we, too, need you, and we want to get to know you just like you, we hope you want to get to, to know us. And we continue to pray for that empty chair. And I'm sure there's a lot of other groups around uh, Garden Way that are also praying for that empty chair because I'm sure Rob's uh, reinforced that with more than just with me. And I, my question to you is that empty chair that we're praying for, is it to be filled by you? Because it might be that, you, that you're the one we're praying for and we just don't know it yet. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. Appreciate it very much. Rob has a wonderful, wonderful life group, and we have lots of other great groups that meet here in our church family. And then we have groups that meet on Sunday morning. We call them adult Bible fellowships, and that's also a great way to get connected and to experience the kind of things Rob has talked about, not just digging more deeply into the Bible, but getting more connected with other people and enriching your experience of prayer and encouragement. And here's my invitation to you. If you're not in some kind of a group, 
out in the Welcome Center on the counter, we've got a little booklet, and it lists the times and the days and the place where all of our groups meet. There's a brief description of those groups. There's a contact person you can get more information from. And I encourage you to visit a few of those groups. Check them out. Find one where you can get involved and where you can feel at home. Because when we get involved in community, when we embrace deep relationships with other followers of Jesus, we're changed. And I truly believe there's a next step here for all of us, no matter where we find ourselves in the life of faith. I think we all can be more intentional about getting better connected, about embracing community at a richer, newer, deeper level. Because when we invest in our life together, that's when we increasingly learn how to love as Jesus asks us to love.